Will 2023 be the year when the mask slips for important political players? There's Keir Starmer, whose mini-me take-back-control bill speaks volumes about the lack of vision uh, for the United Kingdom amongst the Labour Party. There's Rishi Sunak, whose attempt to try and stick emergency money into getting people out of hospital and into social care is rather masked by the fact his Chancellor ditched the health and social care levy that would have given billions to have a proper service. And of course, Harry has now given us an insider's job into the institution that is the monarchy. How will the coronation go in May? Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi, chums, and welcome back to the very first Leslie Riddick podcast of 2023. And it's a, it's a bit of a different one today because, see, my job has been being made slightly harder because I've had to do a bit more work, which I'm not inclined to, because uh, Leslie, <laughs> yeah, I know, I mean, lazy, lazy, I've got to say lazy bugger that I am, which I am. I mean, if I could get away with doing oh, the on. least possible, I would. But usually what happens, you see, I just have to read Leslie's two columns, one in the National and one in the Herald, think to myself, aha, how can I slip in a couple of questions to let Leslie talk about the stuff that she's actually done, all this research? on and written about and that's my job fundamentally done for the day but however you you selfish bism you, you're, <laughs> you're writing a book you're writing a book and you're, and you're making and you're yeah so i've taken problems. the month off basically which is i cannot tell you what i mean apart from happy new year everybody but just uh, this is kind of we're going to be in time scales because we've missed two weeks i, I guess we're going to be duking about all all higher the place but last sunday was the first sunday in something like eight years or something that I haven't written a column for the Herald, something the following day. It was the Scotsman, now the Herald, oh, apart from, you know, wee holidays and stuff. But I mean, being at home here and it was kind of mind blowing, you know, not I did not watch Laura Kunzberg. You know, what a delight. I did not <laughs> have to watch Laura Kunzberg, did not have to try to delve into this quagmire of utterly predictable meltdown horror that, you know, is, is is what the daily stuff of trying to write columns is all about and see if there's a tiny new way that you can shine some light onto it, which, you know, apart from just pegging around the place, it's really difficult to see. So anyway, it has been a delight. However, at the same time, I have reacquainted myself with Dundee University Library since I still have the tail end of a membership there from doing the PhD magic. So um, I've been in there with the 10 other students that there are still who obviously can't get home to the Far East. I think <laughs> probably haven't got the money. So we're all sprinkled across the library with, you know, basically almost nobody in there. Fabulous. I, you know, head down, really getting on with this book. So, yes, I'm in the same boat as you, though, Pat, because now I'm experiencing what your normal is, because I'm thinking, <laughs> What's been happening? You know, I mean, I have no idea what's been going on. Oh, dear. oh well, that's so, it. Well, yeah. that, that's been the legendary you know, podcast. Thing is, though, <laughs> is that it actually gives it gives me a real insight, given that, you know, my, my normal is having to plow into the middle of this stuff and then being slightly sort of amazed that people that are vaguely on the money haven't watched the latest this or that, mm. didn't see that interview on whatever it was, didn't listen to. I'm not listening to the Today programme, to Blimmin' Radio Scotland anything because it's all annoying uh, except it would have to be said still for channel four news you know it's, it's the only just you know update every day so actually everyone listening will doubtless be much the wiser and it also gives an insight though into 
sort of where people are at, actually, because there's a reason that you don't listen to anything. And it, it, it you begin to realise that although I've got the habits of a lifetime, I think you're the same. We grew up in a generation probably governed by our parents. The first thing they did every morning was switch on the radio. Yeah. And if they were you were near the top of the hour, you know, mum would glance at her watch and she'd say, oh, we'll see what's on the news. And, you, you know, we would listen to news bulletins on the hour all the way through the day, pretty much, if we were near a mm-hmm. radio. So you can see where that habit comes from. And to have that sort of habit, which was almost surgically implanted from birth, surgically removed, is an extraordinary thing that you actually either don't want to listen to any more of it or else um, there's no point in hearing it because it's just another slightly mashed around version of what it was last week. And I don't know if this is age, you know, where you get to a stage where everything you feel like you've heard everything before. But but actually, it's really it, sorry this to start this in such a gloomy fashion. But it's more like there's big there's big things happening, and we never get to the big things. We're always stuck talking about you know the the, the relatively small things that are going on. That's what catches the headlines. Anyway, right, that's me big moan. And just to say, thanks to Asa Samaki Roman, who is the lass uh, who is actually standing in for me in the national uh, for the for four weeks. She did a stonking uh, first column talking about the impact that of Brexit on foreign nationals, EU nationals mm-hmm. like herself. She's French. And uh, she, she, with a bunch of four other French people in Scotland, she set up a sort of uh, book magazine thing called La Revue Écossaise, uh, which is kind of like um, culture, history, essays, interviews and everything. I mean, I'm really keen to meet her now that I'm seeing what she's writing. But she was writing a lot about the way that students who've been here uh, on Erasmus, which is something that probably most people don't rate because they haven't been on it. But um, how, what positive, incredible, glowing experiences French people coming here and other nationals have had, past tense, um, about Scotland and the kind of messages essentially that they come back and spread across Europe and their lives uh, on, on the basis of just one year maybe spent in Scotland. So that was a great first column and uh, you know thank you to her for standing in and the National for letting me be away for a month. Um, I hasten to add without pay. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, we'll come on to pay later. Uh, but, it, but that's an interesting one, because what that kind of leads us directly into is uh, Sir Keir Starmer's latest uh, uh, utterings. I mean, he made a big, big statement at the beginning of the new year, which, yeah, perforce I did have to listen to, and his appearance on uh, Sophie Ridge yesterday, where he's, yet again, rolled back on something he was utterly committed to, which is free movement, which is now out the window because he believes in a points-based system moving to the conservative side of things again another one of the the the, the claims he made he was running for the le- labor leadership that he's reneged on uh but that and the other aspect of it was is is the embracing of take back control and uh, his echoing of the spice girls when he reckons that people who have voted for brexit and people who have voted for scottish independence we're after the same thing we want to take back control because he'll tell you what we want what we really really want want i've been building <laughs> up to that one i thought about that one but you know it is that we're, we're, but it's that funny kind of thing because to, to lead on from that but you're absolutely right because it is that regurgitation of a continual cycle that makes particularly at this time of year i i had to step back and think to myself there's a danger of retreating into the private world and not looking outwards into that public world. And that's kind of like the the narrative that's kind of being promulgated, that they want activists and people concerned about 
the country, which is Scotland and the UK and other aspects, to, to retreat into, to give up on this, because it does seem to be that bun fight between Tories and Tory light. Yeah, and and actually, that if you just follow all the little drip 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 bits, which of course, having switched on today, I've suddenly noticed a few. There's there's that take back control thing was just absolutely ridiculous and laughable. I mean, I I, I you know I came out of my wee perda to put a tweet out sort of saying that this, the take back control bill is cringe making, and can't we just give legislation proper grown up titles? You know, instead of repurposing Tory slogans and, you know, asked what next? Well, a lot of people came up with good suggestions. You know, they got it, got all the big calls right, Bill. <laughs> the, you know, uh, what, there's actually quite a few and, and suddenly I can't remember them all. But, you know, the, it's it's an extraordinary thing that you just can't, you, you're so mirroring the Tories that you can't leave their stuff alone. You know, if there's, it's so eloquent of the absence of any <clears throat> new vision for for the future shape of Britain that um, that Keir Starmer should be actually trying to set, essentially take the language of of Tories, which has now collapsed into baby language. You know, the Leveling Up Secretary. What the actual? Mm-hmm. What is that? You know, Leveling Up is not. You know, I, oh, maybe we're all too old <laughs> that you can remember things like sort of, you know, uh, regional policy, even within England or wages yeah. policy or all sorts of policies set within the heart of government that, you know, create equality across the whole of the UK from the heart of government. And if you're not going to become a federal kind of country, which would be another way of levelling up. Um, then it's a policy that you can't just stick it on as, uh, yeah, we've got policies on health, we've got policies on education. Oh, well, yeah, and we've got policies on utter equality across the whole of the UK. Guy, you mm. know, it's like you've either got this embedded in the whole of government. The fact that you can even nominate one guy to be this left, it's, it's, it speaks so much of the Tory philosophy that also, for example, you don't have proper local power. This is still the most top-down unitary, England is the most unitary sort of country in Europe in terms of where power is held, but you have elected mayors, see. So there's the bright, shiny thing over there, which makes it look to people who have experienced hee-haw in Mm -hmm. recent times in terms of local power as if, by gum, the power's coming rolling out the blooming motorways at us here now, which, of course, is not the case. So every time you hear about one isolated thing um, that's got a ludicrous title like levelling up. I mean, I don't, uh, it's, mm. it's it's just part of a Tory philosophy of we don't deal with anything properly. We just give it a makey-uppy name like a sort of kid would do with kind of bright coloured felt tips, use all the colours to make it more eye-catching. And they've, they've just mimicked that whole thing by even using the language of a baby, baby government that is just trying to put forward mashed up ideas so that none of the bairns choke on what's being given to them. It absolutely I, just makes me so angry. I mean, the whole policy behind it is is kind of rubbish. And the philosophy that they have of trying to kind of, of Keir Starmer's, which is trying mm-hmm. to now sidle up to the Scottish situation, They've all, it's always got to be in relation to something in England. Yes. It's the same as it was with... Uh, the you know eventual announcement by Gordon Brown of his big whatever and now of course his proposal is being called the Take Back Control Commission or something in hindsight. So that too 
Uh, you can only get Scotland mentioned if you get, you know, sort of federalism for England. It's all it's all being put into the same big basket. When you look at the map, the electoral map of Britain, we're different. When you look at the votes over Brexit, we're different. And that it's that thing of of chucking the Scots into the same basket. You could say there's a similar response to the brokenness of Britain. Um, and that 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 doubtless is the impetus for much of what's happened over the last 10 years, that the, the politicians are saying it's all OK. We'll just plough on regardless. Everything's fine. The Scots have kind of gone. I don't think so. And probably our exit is just getting out of this whole shebang because we never really fitted anyway. God knows what the impulse is for folk in England, mm-hmm. given their only moment of being able to vote for something different and give the establishment two fingers, decided, yeah, we'll agree that it's not, you know, it's the problem isn't our own governance. It's Europe. Let's take back control. But nobody's even analysing it that way because they daren't do it. They mm-hmm. still daren't actually look at what is going on, the dynamics of what's going on within the English psyche. And the fundaments of the problems created by the most unequal society in the OECD. Now, if you if you can't sort of get to the heart of some of this, which obviously Jeremy Corbyn started to kind of unpack yes. and then that scared everybody witless. You're always going to be babying around the corner of it with these sorts of just trying to mimic the Tories analysis, which I, I just can't, I can't see how he thinks that's going to be anything other than conf- condemning him and Labour, and the country to being in a shadow Tory government should he win. Yeah, because the new mantra, and and stand by for this, because when he was speaking to Sophie Ridge, I think he used it about four times within about space of two minutes, which is change and reform, change and reform. And that was echoed by John Ashcroft when he was questioned directly about our friend, the universal credit system, which Starmer and his front bench had pledged to scrap they're now going to, guess what, change and reform. And the, when asked about the NHS and the crisis there, his, his, his statement was, well, I've asked West Streeting to come up with, wait for it, a 10-year plan. On what planet does he actually think he exists that you can guarantee there will be 10 years of a Labour government in that they were going to inherit the mess, which the Tories, I think, will turn around and be able to play against them at the, the subsequent general election. And there's no guarantee even that Tory-like government will get a second a second chance at governance. Aye, but I suppose, <clears throat> I suppose to be fair to them, they're... They, they seem to be complete, completely seized with this terror of the, this, the, the, the constant barb that is always thrown at Labour. And this is where, you know, parties become bent all out of shape and movements mm-hmm. and everything, because there's one sentence that everyone is scared of so much that they will absolutely, you know, lose their, their own values and everything to simply have a good riposte to it. And for Labour, it was always it's uncosted and they're going to tax the hell out of you to get something more. So and they they come all the time with, you know, here's Keir Starber, the sober looking fellow. He doesn't rock the boat for you. He doesn't set the heather alight. But by gum, he's so boring. You can believe that when he tells you he's got something costed, he's spent the last three nights actually up there getting all the numbers right. This is the, the image that they're trying to portray. So everybody has to look the same. All of them are serious as hell. Nobody cracks a joke. 
you, you know, it's it's all like that. And of course, it's all trying to do that gradualist thing, which is, mm, yeah, when you really come down to it, can we actually just dump universal credit and go back to six individual benefits? Well, nobody ever thought that was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, you, could, you could say there's a, there's a complete case for changing the entire benefit system. But whether or not Labour, this is always the problem for a party that is not yet in government. You don't know what you're going to pick up. You haven't yeah. really got the resources to be able to scale up an entire different system, though you definitely have to start thinking about the philosophy of how you would approach it. And it's a bit like people always used to say in broadcasting, never do pilots for programmes <laughs> <laughs> because they're always rubbish. Rubbish. You know, yeah. because you haven't been in the building. You don't even have the kind of card to make sure you get back in from going to the loo. Uh, you know, security control. You haven't got this, the people working together for long enough to trust one another to produce a really proper program. You can't, you know, all those things pertain. So it is difficult for them to figure out where they're going to be walking precisely with some of the changes that are necessary. But by gum, they, they need to have a philosophy of what they think welfare is about, how yes. much of, of you know, and, and the inter, the connections between groups of spending, because the other thing that's really struck me, I'm doubtless we're coming on to this, um, <clears throat> is just this the massive connection that has had an utter torchlight applied to it just in the last week or two between the health service and social care. Yeah. You know, which is like, I, I mean, I, I was reading all the analyses of, of where it's all going wrong. <clears throat> and just sort of, there's something in the back of my mind where I was thinking, but there's something that happened recently. And it was indeed that when Jeremy Hunt came in, um, he rubber stamped the terrible quasi-quartang plan, which was to cancel the rise in national insurance contributions, which, you know, there's a lot of employers and people might think, well, that was all right, actually. But which, you know, national insurance, which is is one part of what was going into the mm-hmm. pot that was going to create a proper social care service. The other bit of the pot was the health and social care levy, which also got axed. And that was, just for the statistics, £65 billion worth of money that had been earmarked for the NHS over the next five years, gone. Yeah. So now you come back to where we are <clears throat> with the British government talking about setting up essentially what the Times today is saying would be cabins inside, inside hospital grounds to be able to deal with people shifting them literally out of wards because they won't manage to find enough space or staff, thanks to Brexit. Um, in, you know, in social care settings, all sorts of difficulties about proper medical care, which people might still need to try and get this, the the, the horrible phrase, bed blocking or delayed discharge problems Mm -hmm. sorted. Um, And I mean, this is where this needed a proper plan. And even the Tories had come up with one with that health and social care levy, because they could see that you actually need to move the, the big blocks around of this. Uh, and and that got cancelled. So here we are now, as ever, just chucking bits of money, which sound big, at a problem which cannot be sorted that way. Well, I mean, it's uh, I mean, looking back at it, I mean, it was Jeremy Hunt who was in charge of the National Health Service, you know, for what was it what was it eight years? I mean, an, an absolute disaster. And there's no no expectation I have him as Chancellor. But we actually read he wrote a book back in 2005 called direct democracy he's since said no no i don't don't agree with what i said in there but i think actually when somebody says something the first time i kind of take that as what they really mean he says that denationalizing the provision of healthcare in britain 
it should be what we are up to. And the NHS is no longer relevant in the 21st century. And, I mean, he was the man that presided over this massive shift towards private health care. People like Virgin Virgin Healthcare getting $2 billion. And that, the, the whole depth of this uh, crisis, yeah, it is a crisis in the, the National Health Service, happened between 2010 and 2018 under Jeremy Hunt. He sowed the seeds of massive privatisation. He sowed the seeds of the, the diminishing number of hospital beds and the non-training of doctors. He started the narrative, blame the patients, you know, for not looking after yourself properly. Properly Blame the staff, you know, put a blame on everybody else. And it is that whole thing about, you know, if go back to Noam Chomsky's uh, statements about first you, you defund, make the system not operable correctly, and then that leads the way to allow private companies to come in and reap the benefits initially by cherry picking. Um, and, and I noticed today, you know, it, 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 an advert came up for Bupin. I'm seeing quite a lot of that one. And it, but underneath it, it said pre-existing conditions not covered. And that's the horrifying aspect of where we're actually headed. And you can't sort of deny that Scotland's in the same boat. I mean, it's very hard to know unless we had a good chat to Philippa Whitford or indeed somebody that's probably active, but they'd be active in their own bit of the health service. So it's very hard to kind of get an overview of where we are across uh, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. Um, except that unquestionably people are now stuck outside hospitals mm -hmm. with the same problem, um, not being able to get out of ambulances because there's no sort of empty beds. And I see today that there's talk about the idea that Nicola had come up with that she'd put extra funding into uh, buying up spare beds in care homes. They're saying, well, there's no spare beds in care homes. And yeah. that's partly because of COVID outbreaks amongst the staff as well. Um, and staffing shortages that have never been fixed um, because of, yeah, same back to COVID, uh, back to Brexit, and also the problems of, of the ongoing problems of low pay in that sector. Yes. So, yeah, it's a blooming sir effect. It always is at this time of year, you'd have to say. But I mean, it, this it, it is all pretty desperate. And the, the structure of funding, although it's a devolved uh, competence completely, our income is related very strongly to the pattern of spending within the English NHS through the Barnett formula. Yes. And we, we have a situation where less is spent essentially on health in Britain than in almost any other European country. So we get a, a, a portion of that. And OK, you do what you can with it. And there's a lot of people will be critical about how it's spent here. But that pattern is something that we need to kick free from. And I don't know, you know, a long time ago, the health and social care partnerships were set up in Scotland, well ahead of any attempt to bring those budgets together south of the border. But and again, again, I sort of apologise because I feel like I should have asked people more recently how that's working out. But the last time I heard from people, it's not done anything particularly strongly. I mean, please contradict us, folks, if you know otherwise. But the tendency is still to just create new structures that give a lot of people at the top of it, you know, new posts, promotion, big budget jobs. And actually, everybody beneath it is still guarding their money like there's no tomorrow. Health is still hanging on to its money. You know, councils are still hanging on to their money. It's a real tough one to do to bring that together into one kind of concerted, mm -hmm. planned way of dealing with everybody. But by gum, we need to do it. 
Yeah, I mean, and that that's the whole problem, Leslie. We exist in this in this union where that provides a veil over what we could actually do in reality and an, an analysis that we can actually undertake of what it would be like in an independent Scotland if we ran our own national health service. Because despite, I mean, Sa- Dr. Sandish Gohani was was interviewed uh, yesterday. You know, Did that, you? That, was that the one on on? Sort of drive time, or you yeah, know. yeah. I was, I had my jaw on the ground. I was listening to that, and a normally fairly timid uh, interviewer completely went for him in a sort was, of it was extraordinary way. It was brilliant. Yeah. Oh, it was it was fantastic. I mean, I was I was waiting to say that we that well known NHS scrubs cosplayer, Doctor Sandish Gohani. You know, Scottish NHS in crisis. No one would say that it is not. He then went on to say it's 15 years of SNP incompetence and Humsa Yusuf must go. Then came the question, well, if it's incompetence up here, what about England? And suddenly Sandish became Afi Scottish. Or I'm a Scottish GP. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Scottish MSP. I'm only concerned about Scotland. And then the willfulness of, and because of that, I don't know anything about the situation in England, the statistics or what's going on down there. I mean, it was, I mean, it was a, a car crash interview. That just seems to be, you know, that, you know Sandish Gohani's standard practice. But this was the car crash interview of all car crash interviews. Absolutely ripped a new one. Yeah, it, it was astonishing. And I'm sure the Tories will now say, oh, you know, whoever, that that new interviewer gets laddered to the list of people that are obviously nationalists and, you know, not to be trusted mm-hmm. and Radio Scotland's full of trots and whatever. Uh, but he was simply just he got a long time battering on about the SNP's shortcomings yeah. in his eyes. And it was only towards the end that the but the interviewer just hung on to the question. That was all it yes. was. He just demanded an answer to the question, which. Sandish Kulhandi just sounded so shocked that he'd even been asked about. So uh, yeah, it was it's it's good stuff. And I mean, you know, the you've got to say the media is now trying to look for, in some respects, for for better, you know, wholehearted answers now from 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 all parties rather than just the sort of fairly lazy batting of stuff. Because even though I think there is obviously an impact on the way the patterns of spending established over decades and controlled still by the template of a devolution, which we've learnt last year, um, mm-hmm. it can be taken or left by a Westminster government when it feels like it. Um, there is still genuine debate, if you like, around that, about what we're actually doing with the money and the resources yeah. we have got and if the media will start expecting all sides, including the SNP, to play proper and get down to some detailed planning about where we can shift resources around with some real contributions. And that's difficult because, you know, all these issues of health, social care, you need to be in that system. And most, you know, papers, for example, in the, you know, when I was still working in them, they would have a health correspondent, an energy correspondent, a home affairs correspondent, which was often covering trade unions these guys would be a stab you know in the with the bricks yeah. of how things worked and they would know i mean coming to the trade you know to the the strikes and the trade union situations that we've got at the moment um you can see and feel the absence of those correspondents because they all got junked because mm-hmm. you know the the thinking was for such a long time the trade unions are on their way out that's it you don't need that all the correspondents you know basically had gone and so, you, you know, there's there's none of the sort of real understanding that the strikes are being treated now as a series of events rather yes. than the 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 kind of movements and growth of a sector. 
Uh, and you can again see that they're just the absence of a sort of of a bigger strategy. So the media, it would be great to think, you know, but hopeless, I'd guess, given the, again, sort of underfunding story that you'd ever get correspondence that would build up experience again. I mean, I guess Jamie McIver on Radio Scotland is as close as it gets to somebody who works in that sort of sphere. But uh, yeah, it's it, it was a good, good interview. And, you know, well done. Let's have more of that kind of stuff. Yeah, because, I mean, there has been some terrific work done, which we're going to go on to. But the 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 other aspect of it that, that I liked was he actually asked the question, which I always set the students to ask. When somebody's complaining about something, you say, well, what would you do then? I mean, he didn't follow it. He didn't, he, he didn't answer. He said, but then he's, we did actually say, well, we published yeah. our strategy, you know, yeah. two weeks ago. Now, that's the one sort of one where this is where how much work you need to do before you go in because you yeah. need to know you need to guess what they'll say so you'd need to find that out that so you need to have before. looked at yeah. that and said yes it was three lines long and it said this this and this so mm-hmm. but but not to be too critical of people that was again based on days when there was quite a lot of research capacity which i yes. can see doesn't exist actually within the beeb anymore but still if you're the one that's going in, it's you that looks stupid. So, you know, I would always spend quite a lot of time trying to figure out if I do that, they'll say that. Then I yeah. need to be able to kind of underpay. It's much the same as this podcast on a on a day when we've both been, you know, sort of a normal kind of <laughs> podcast where there's been a lot of effort put in. But you've got to kind of chase the rabbit holes down so that yeah. you see what they'll do when you get them into that rabbit hole. What other wee one will they try and scurry out? Then you need to close those ones all down. And it's not like you're psychic. It's not difficult because people are really quite predictable. So if you're going to take a strategy to them of, okay, you're going to say this, we'll let you say that for one question, then we're going to hear it, we're fed up with you just banging away about stuff, let's examine your alternatives. You need to do more. You need mm-hmm. to really make your whole interview and research up what the Tories suggest for Scotland. You could have a bit of fun with that once you get into it, because it will look doubtless extremely different from England. But anyway. Um, right. Yeah, but some terrific work. I mean, hats off to Sky, Sam Coates and Tortoise Media for their fantastic uh, torchlight being shone on MPs' earnings mm. out with their MPs' salaries. I mean, I I don't know about you. I mean, but I I know I'm I'm old enough. I shouldn't be shocked. Seventeen million quid they've earned since 2019, and it'll come as no surprise to anyone else that I just say on a personal basis, just like Rangers haven't considered a penalty this whole season, 15 million quid has gone to, to Tories, 1.2 million to Labour, 171,000 to the Lib Dems, and 149,000 to the SNP. Of the top 20, two-thirds of the money went to the top 20, 17 of which are Tories. Top of the list, Theresa May earning two and a half million quid, Geoffrey Cox two point two million quid, and Boris Johnson at one million quid. Now the thing that got—I mean, I, just it just it occurred to me: Theresa May getting that money for speeches. Sorry, I mean, <laughs> I thought to myself, I mean, but but it is that whole thing. The Theresa May has managed to build up this persona of the. The statesperson. She stood up in Parliament and managed to put the boot into Boris Johnson about his personal probity in terms of Partygate, etc., and letting the side down. She was a woman as Prime Minister who prevented her own people attending conferences in Saudi Arabia. And we've just actually found out what the, the price of her conscience is. She attended a gig organised by the World Travel and Tourism Council in Saudi 
And what was the price of that? She get she got over a hundred thousand pounds for speaking at that gig in Saudi Arabia, lauding Saudi Arabia as a tourist destination, completely forgetting about her outrage at the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. But I mean, it is that whole thing when you actually pick this this through. It does go back to the whole aspect. I mean, I said jokingly, just like football teams, MPs should have stickers on them to indicate who's giving them money. The other thing we discovered as well is that. The Labour Party at West Streeting, for example, and Sir Keir Starmer, appear to be a really cheap date because one of the guys, is, I think it's a guy, um, is John Armitage, who's a hedge fund that gives eight, has $800 million invested in the biggest private health provider in the UK, gave £15,000 to West Streeting and twelve and a half grand to Sir Keir Starmer. A couple of cheap dates, you know, chump change, when he'd given three billion quid to the Tories. But I mean, it just, it, it does shine a light and it's terrific work that anybody can get access to. It does shine a light on the reality. Are the two sets of bankers parties that are in charge? Yeah, it does. It does make you absolutely wonder. And if you're right, because I mean, a, a good friend of mine uh, back in the day broke the sort of uh, cash for amendments scandal that surrounded uh, um, the many people at the time in, in the House of Lords were basically being paid to put forward amendments. And I mean, back then that created a huge amount of outrage. Then, of course, there was the MPs expenses mm-hmm. scandal. And now it's almost like, you know, that that period, it was like loads of money all over again, except we didn't have that loads of money character operating in the background to let us know that this is the way yeah. it is. It's loads of money for still for bankers. You know, that that move that got slipped through by Jeremy Hunt yes. when nobody was really looking, allowing the bonuses to just go sky high again. It's like, you know, you'd made that analysis just at the end of last year between the sort of what we call the far right in Europe and Britain Mm -hmm. that somehow doesn't feel far right because it hasn't got a kind of party that's got any seats that's got essentially British National Party on it. Uh, And and in many respects, it's the same. It's the same relative thing in that we've got a relative similarity to the old loads of money, a million pound bonuses days of the what 90s, whatever. But we're not even seeing it as that somehow because it's cloaked in such very sober people. I mean, you look at Jeremy Hunt, who's a millionaire and Rishi Sunak, he's the most wealthy person ever to have been prime minister. And you know, because they're not chucking it about and it's not obvious, despite the fact that Rishi Sunak wouldn't answer whether or not oh, he yeah. has private health, you know, cover. And of course, we know all the stuff about his wife, but somehow they keep it very sober when they're speaking so that somehow you don't attach the loads of money, chucking it around. You mm-hmm. can't imagine that surrounding them. It's amazing how much, how clever they can be in terms of the persona that they present then suggesting that basically the rest of you know what goes on behind the scenes is it's probably nothing to do with them somehow. And Theresa May, as you say, actually Theresa May making money for speaking. I mean, that just seems like an oxymoron. But, you know, but meantime, I mean, I was I was noticing something else on on this front, which was just back to what's quietly going on, because, you know, when the stuff got on front of house, you do wonder what else is going on behind mm. the scenes. And one of the things that I noticed last week was this promise that the Tories have made to, to basically have um, a bonfire of European law yes. by the end of this year. Now, I mean, again, this is people will go, well, how sort of boring is this? It's like making law boring, European Union stuff boring, whatever. 
And the the hue and cry there's been from people who understand these things, is, is including, uh, you know, that former head of the civil service, Philip Rycroft, <clears throat> useful guy who who came out and gave us a lot of intel mm. about the inner workings and chronically appalling workings of Westminster at the moment. Um, and he was actually the permanent secretary at uh, the Department for Exiting the EU. He's now saying it's beyond belief that ministers are sticking to this sunset clause that basically EU law fails, just ends by the end of 2023. Uh, and it seems that the government's intent on doing it. Um, you know, everybody has been in saying that this is in all sorts of areas of regulation and stuff. We're, we're seeing how the casual approach to trying to fix stuff in in Northern Ireland has taken years to, to get to what might hopefully be some sort of accommodation. Um, but there's, there's, there's loads of people basically saying there's no way this can be done in good order. And all the sort of it's not the usual suspects. It's then mm-hmm. professors of European law who are saying this is completely unrealistic. It's people in the House of Lords who are saying the deadline is bonkers. It's people in the financial community, the direct institute of directors who are sort of saying that this will cause significant confusion and disruption for business that we simply do not know, you know, how to cope with. It's all going on. You know, when what, how does anybody feel that that just that arbitrary thing? Is that just to sort of throw red meat to the Brexit, you know, the, 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 that part of his party, um, which must be appeased? It makes you think a bit about Kevin, poor Kevin, well, poor Kevin McCarthy, you know, the speaker in, mm. in America who is now in hawk completely to, you know, the Trumpian yeah. part of the Republican Party. You can look like these 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 aspects of politics are under control and in the past. But there you see, you know, with that sort of ludicrous, utter chaos causing small thing behind the scenes, that's going to be the style of stuff uh, throughout the rest of this year to just keep that part of his party happy. Or keep himself happy, Leslie, because, men, that's the whole thing. Yeah. That was the great trick that was played by Liz Truss, who was a, a fervent Remainer, who then became the, the champion of Brexiteers. And Rishi Sunak, who'd been a Brexiteer since day one, was suddenly the, the 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 one who seemed to be soft on Brexit. I mean, that is an incredible trick, but you actually hit the nail on the head where you have Jeremy Hunt, who actually took a side through the National Health Service, able to present himself as a defender of patients' rights, and Rishi Sunak, who just appears to be, appears to be a far more sensible person than the Bampot List Trust and the, the outlier, you know, that was wild Boris Johnson. So and if he's I, my, Indeed. And when you think about it, then actually just just listen to him, just sort of thinking this, you could put two and two together here because they're going to end up with a Northern Ireland protocol deal that will basically annoy the unionists and accept the situation in Northern Ireland. Um, it's very probable that he has to have something that kind of, you know, shows mm-hmm. that he's still a tough boy when it comes to Brexit to a party that's never really believed him, even though he did vote leave. He, he's never really convinced the sort of absolute bams within the Tory party that he's one of them. So, uh, you know, it's very possible it's with, within the Tory party. It's the swings and roundabouts necessary to get some sort of progress in Northern Ireland. You have to look like you're mm-hmm. going to do something totally self-harming um, on the on the EU legislation front to prove that you're one of them. Anyway. Yeah, well, because continuing with Sunak, I mean, he... He came out with his five pledges. Have inflation, which the OBR says is ready to fall to 3.8% anyway, you know, at the end of the year. So that's a, a very 
uh, something that ought to be achieved, uh, grow the economy. Well, the OECD is ourselves, and I nearly said the Soviet Union here, that's uh, ourselves and Russia who are at the bottom of the lead table in terms of lack of growth. Uh, unemployment set to, to rise, according to the uh, the OBR. Fallen national debt, well, it's up 30% more than it was in 2010. NHS waiting lists to fall. And again, that's one that the Institute for Fiscal Studies has said there's going to be, you know, there's going to be a drop in the waiting list anyway as we come out this, hopefully come out the winter crisis. And yet the big one, which seemed to me, again, seemed odd. You've got these four major things, having inflation, growing the economy, get the national debt to fall, get NHS waiting lists down, and then new laws to stop people coming here in small boats. And those are our priorities, according to Rishi Sunak. And it's the fifth one that actually just says that's another example of that red meat that you talked about. The other four, yeah, they, these are legitimate political decisions that can be taken and our ambitions, no matter how really or easily achievable they may be within the framework of what's predicted by others. But that fifth one just gives the red meat, you know, narrative uh, even more impetus. But just come back to the first one, because if you're talking about having inflation, you can't have this both ways, because the whole stick that the Tories have at the moment is that this has nothing to do with us, Gov. Inflation, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's being driven by world pressures. It's being driven by Ukraine. It's being driven by these other things. If, if it's the case that it's like, look, we've got our hands on the steering wheel, but there's something else kind of tugging at the wheel. You know, we, we're kind of basically good drivers, but you kind of kind of keep a straight furrow when you've got this many other things coming in at you uncontrollable from outside. How do you then argue that, oh, but now actually it was us that managed to have inflation when you said that inflation rising is nothing to do with you in the first yes. place? You know, if it's all about <laughs> then the having inflation will will very possibly be predicated as well on the hope that something you know the situation in Ukraine manages to stabilize or that people have got workarounds built in now to try and deal with some of the energy prices although I see you know we, we all know that mm -hmm. the the situation with the price caps going to change and it will possibly become grimmer but they're bargaining on at the time that the weather will become better please gods uh, so all of it is just in time it's just in time but the basic tenant of this is, are you in charge or are you not in charge? Was yeah. inflation on your watch or due to world pressures? If it was due to world pressures, then it's nothing to do with you if inflation is actually halved. So, I mean, you know, where are we? Are we just a little boat lost, you know, bobbing around in the great sea of world events with no ability to steer essentially in Britain, which is the shtick that they've been coming out with for the last God knows how long? Or are you actually a manager? In which case, I'm sorry, but we're going to put a lot of this inflation stuff back at your door, honey. Yeah. Um, and this is where I just would love somebody to, you know, slightly everyone glazes over when you go, oh, God, you know. <laughs> uh, but just there you are, right in the first thing is is a very strong point that must essentially be discussed. I mean, equally, where where are we? When we look at just this total bust up situation there is with strikes totally south of the border where nobody seems to be, you know, the, the strategy again is to keep trying to look tough. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, the, the trope that's sitting behind that one is still the minor strike. It's yes. still Maggie. It's still these people are scum. You need to keep them. The difficulty, of course, is that the public do not see workers as scum actually anyway. 
and probably never saw the minors that way, just to be clear. Yeah. But, you know, there's no way that you can demonize nurses. You can't do it. You cannot do it. You can't, you know, the rest of the health service, they've got eloquent, powerful spokespeople who are straight out the door, able to easily knock down the feeble kind of arguments that are being put up. And the insult, I mean, absolutely, you can see people just absolutely vibrating with rage when they're asked to respond to the idea that they need to raise their productivity. Yes. When, oh, you know, God, everyone yeah. in the health service is quite obviously working kind of flat out and beyond their hours, which is the reason so many of them are considering uh, and have moved to, to jobs in in any other sector, which which will actually be more predictable. Now, you could have a long conversation about productivity in a wider sense, but that should fit into how the health service works for its staff. You know, this productivity thing sounds so much like some old Victorian kind of you, you know, kind of mill work uh, manager yeah. or owner, just prodding the, you know, the little people, you know, cracking the whip literally over them. More, more, higher units, more widgets, get them all cracked out. And that's how it sounds to all of us. And it's been well cast that way by unions, uh, especially the health unions, just saying, you know, a day in crisis with us on strike in the NHS, a day in crisis for the NHS with us not on strike. Where's the difference? Yes. You know, essentially, yeah. there's hardly any difference. It's it's a chaos that had begun long before, as we've discussed here, long before any of these last minute kind of uh, issues that this, the British government is trying to blame. But anyway, here they are now with this attempt. I think they're discussing it as we speak, actually, in the Commons to put up this bill, um, oh, yeah. which basically stops well they're 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 calling it a sort of safe it's got a safety bill aspect yeah. built into it but the idea is to try to make um the unions that have not currently got uh, national safety standard agreements in place that they will have to have them in future uh, a lot of the unions will say well we actually have local agreements in place that's you know that's all that that it is it's just a tradition that we've been we work with local health boards. I mean, that's very much the way that the British government wants to run it as well, in the sense of, as we discussed earlier, these are health trusts, which um, yes. very, very often are run by private companies. Um, and that's the way they've wanted to run the health service. But when it comes to trying to whack people over the head for um, strike action, suddenly they want that to have national agreements. But anyway, that's where yeah. they are at the moment. Whether that will get through the the Lords, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of opposition to all of this. Equally, there'll be a lot of opposition to the bonfire of the EU legislation in the Lords. So it could be one of these ironic moments where the Lords yes. again are expected to sort of weigh in and cause the level of hassle that essentially cannot be caused in the Commons. And again, that could be a difficulty in a wee way for the SNP because they don't put forward anyone for the yeah. utterly corrupt and should be abolished House of Lords. So, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a extraordinary situation, but it need there needs to be really strong opposition put forward to these, again, sugar coated notions that are being slipped in about trying to inhibit trade union rights under the guise of national agreements and safety cover. Yeah, well, this is minimum service level thing. I mean, it, it goes right across health, education, fire, ambulance, rail, nuclear commissioning. And one of the, the things about this allows the companies to sue unions and sack employees, you know, 
and allows them to take out injunctions to stop strikes and seek damages if they go ahead. Well, I mean, uh, the, the rail companies won't—they're getting plenty of—they're getting plenty of money punted into them any time. It's twenty to twenty-five million quid every time there's a strike action in Eribe. But that's a that's a whole other area there. But he, but Rishi Sunak was asked about uh, would he be prepared to work for the money that people earned in social care. Answer came down on I'm doing my job as prime minister uh, along with this. I'm refusing to answer. Uh, whether I've got private health care or not, which means, yes, I've got private health care. But one of the bizarre questions, because Laura Koonsberg didn't go anywhere near, whether she wasn't going near it because it was Sky that had broken the news about MPs' external external earnings. She didn't, didn't go in there. But she did ask a rather odd question, which was about uh, John Major was quite prepared to step into the whole stushy concerning the, the monarchy and try and reconcile, you know, the royal family. And Rishi Sunak refused to answer about about that. And it's it's funny because you, you, you've been researching in, in your new book about monarchies a, across Europe and Ours is an outlier in terms of its its status and its funding and its role within our society. Yeah, I mean, strangely enough, and I hadn't actually got this to the front of my mind because that is a chapter that has been sort of uh, semi-opened and semi-shut last you know, couple of weeks ago. Oh, right. But, um, most, most monarchies in Europe don't even have coronations. Oh. I, I mean, the level of there not being hangers on they're not being multiple palaces. There's another thing. There's one. Um, you, you, the King of Norway has got a heart. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, it's, it's worth people getting a sense of what, what the normal is. I mean, that's part of what I'm trying to put into the book. Um, you know, because it really is. We, we have, uh, of course, on the one hand, there is uh, there is a great fandango made about the idea that we have a unique monarchy here. And that's why everyone rolls over to see it. Um, but actually, the reason it is unique is there's nobody else lets a, a kind of unelected, fairly dysfunctional family um, end up with 10, 20, 30 palaces, yeah. endless numbers of hangers on. I mean, there's rumours that Charles is going to try and cut that down a bit to try and retrieve some ground after all the Prince, you know, the, the kind of Harry revelations and so on. But yeah, it's it, it that's true. The other thing that actually was the last column I think I did of last year was was the level, however, of entrenchedness that there is of the monarchy essentially within 14 other kingdoms, maybe 15 around the Commonwealth. 14 because um, Barbados skipped out last in 2021. Mm -hmm. um, Jamaica's actually on the case and might have a referendum this year. Australia, Canada, these guys, when you look at it, what's what's holding them up is apparently it took Barbados. I still find this hard to believe 40 years to get the consensus, but also the legal unpicking of um, what taking monarchy out of their framework of law would mean for them. And in the case of Canada, many of the agreements that were made um, between First Nations people in Canada were made under the auspices of treaties with the crown of the United Kingdom, unbelievably, mm -hmm. so that a lot of important treaties that are sort of more recent apparently hinge on the presence of the monarchy within the Canadian system. So it's it's interesting to see. I mean, I just took a little tiptoe into that. I've no doubt since there's people who spend their entire lives on constitutional law that this is a more complex area but the fact of it is, as perceived by people in all these countries, 
that whilst the, the majority of people in Canada and Australia are just in favour in Canada a bit more in removing the monarchy from you know the royal mm-hmm. house out of their political systems, it's proving to be easier said than done. So in Australia, they're having to kind of the exercise of trying to get your constitution right involves a lot of spring cleaning. So, for example, the Australians hadn't got a legislative recognition of the Aboriginal people within their legal system and their constitutional system. So they're looking to have a referendum this year on including that, which mm-hmm. other places have got. So it's a long, slow business of trying to kind of modernise stuff when you've got this essentially dead hand of a, of, of a monarchy system sitting at the top of it. That doesn't mean everyone's happy. Yeah. It just means it's blooming hard to actually move from one foot to the other, as indeed Scotland is finding. You know, so it, it there's something kind of reassuring to see that that actually many countries which have got a much brisker attitude towards being republics and in every other respect have become modern countries with modern voting systems, modern outlooks, non horrible immigration systems mm-hmm. you know modern countries are still stuck with the monarchy with the british monarchy within their constitutional setups it's that much of a sticky piece of chewing gum you canny 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 get off your finger so we're we're in good company that way i don't know if you even <laughs> want to speak about the harry stuff did you watch it at all I, no I, I i no i didn't watch any of the interviews i mean it's 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 one of these things where I, I, I was I was saying to saying to someone, you know, no matter which way the coin is tossed, it's always going to end up in a member of the royal family's pocket. You know what I mean? And I'm not I'm not playing down the media attack on on Meghan in particular, which I think was scurrilous. I'm just racist. I mean, at its core. And whether they believe these things to be true or were simply promulgating it in order for profit, I do not know. But it does seem to me that no matter what happens. Harry and Meghan, and it's a, a dreadful situation they find themselves in, and it seems to be appalling, but the money's still going to go, go to Harry. The book's not going to be number one on Amazon, etc., and everything like that. It is a circus. It is a soap opera. And it's a soap opera that is at the, the rotten core of the class system in the UK. So I've been, it's been on and off, and I've been seeing it, and I, I just get incredibly fu- infuriated. Uh, Jenny Murray, who must have liked on Women's Hour, came out and and she was mithering on about it and I just switched it off to be perfectly frank. I, mm. I just I just despise despise the whole thing. So yes, I'm not going to talk about Harry and Meghan, but I just did talk about Harry, Harry and Meghan. Well, let me have a wee stifter because I was much the same, not going to watch any of it. And then uh, in, in a night of the long knives where um, I was up for various reasons um, and sort of stuck with only that, <laughs> thought, well, come on, it's not only that, but you know, I thought maybe it's time yeah. to actually see what this is about. The only thing that struck me about it, and it's absolutely true, I mean, so many people have difficult personal grief situations. Yes. But it's actually it's actually quite jaw-dropping the degree to which he's basically just revealed absolutely everything. Mm. Some of it's jaw-dropping in the uh why why would every every move in your life be interesting to anybody else? And this is partly what it's uh, it's so de- dis- disappointing and depressing about the 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 hold that the royals have over mm-hmm. the British psyche is that somehow they're they're sort of hyper relevant and it still feeds into this narrative that the kind of every move of the toffs 
is somehow invested with much more meaning and significance and indeed almost has emotional trickle down Mm -hmm. because they're experiencing good grief. They're having the same emotions and difficulties as the rest of us. Lordy, lordy. You know, there's, there's definitely an awful lot of that going on. And yet sort of look, just watching him. I've never seen anybody appear to, you know, okay. there's an awful lot of stuff he could be asked about his, you know, rowdy Mm. times in his younger years, although he seems to have actually dissed quite a lot of that as well. But still, it's the the degree that he's sitting there giving chapter and verse on absolutely everything that has happened within an institution. Of course, you know, his his beef, in a sense, is that this was his family that basically he thinks Mm -hmm. did the dirty on him. But nonetheless, he's shown a backlight that only an insider could shine on the inner workings of this institution, which, as we've just heard from that discussion of the place monarchy has within the constitution of other countries even, it's still powerful. And yet this is how it operates. So some of it, to that degree, the amount of just unflinching, unguarded responses. If he's somebody who's sitting there with a kind of don't go here, don't go there set of boundaries in his answers, by gum is he the best actor I've ever seen Mm -hmm. in my life? Because he seems to answer, you know, questions fully without any of the hesitation we've got used to from politicians who go, don't go to that point and don't remember, you know, don't concede this thing. Don't mention that word. Remember to plug that slogan. That's what we've got used to as public discourse from public figures. He's much more fluent than that, which is astonishing. So, I mean, the, the whole thing is surprising and it does have the impact that. It makes the coronation this year now a really fraught Mm -hmm. blooming event because not only hopefully will people begin to realise, you know, that other countries don't even have coronations. They're so determined not to spend money on trappings. Um, But that obviously those parts of the Commonwealth that are already considering and trying to wheak the monarchy out of their constitutions will probably be the ones that side with the you know the, the the chasm that's opened up will side with the Harry Megan Harry Megan mm-hmm. side of it, and since he's obviously not going to be coming, I don't know what he's said or not said, but I mean you can't see that one working. Mm-hmm. All eyes will simply be on that, and then what? You know what what does that mean for the monarchy as it moves forward? As as country after country ditch ditch the the monarchy as they slowly manage to unpick their their legal situation. I don't know. So, I mean, in, in the one hand, it is a load of blethers about, you know, a posh bunch of people that have been what? cosseted and whatever. But that bunch of po- cosseted people um, actually have a structural and emotional hold over the psyche of yeah. this country and other countries. So anything that sort of ups the apple cart a bit, you know, is, uh, yeah. is possibly worth considering. Yeah, and I mean, it, let's not forget this is a this is a, a a royal family that has successfully reinvented itself over over generations in order to maintain its existence. I mean, even just the very fact of Saxe Coburg Gotha became the House of Windsor. You know, it moves with the times, it morphs, it changes, and it's whether Prince Charles, oh, sorry, King Charles, has the ability to continue to do that, or, or William and Kate will be they, they have that responsibility ceded to them to represent a new monarchy for a new generation, etc. And Charles is merely the, the the holding personality at that point. And I but strange, isn't it? Because it does. It, it sort of comes down to that personality thing still. And it's a it's a ridiculous way to have to assess mm-hmm. institutions, isn't it? You know, yeah. in the end, 
as to whether or not you like the personality of somebody or not. And yet that's what essentially if you if you're there as a figurehead kind of ends up being probably pretty important. Mm. Well, yeah, this is exactly talking about. Sorry, this is these things spring to my head, and I've got I've got to apologise. Talking about figureheads, we're in the month of January. You know, Janus, the Roman god of beginnings, gates, transitions, time, duality, looking back, looking forward, and oh, sorry, I'm getting a wax a little bit. But T. S. Eliot said April's the cruelest month, but I tend to think, you know this time of year is possibly the cruelest month. And it was a, on reflection, I noticed that you tweeted about Terry Hall, uh, whom I remember uh, fondly from initial days in, in the specials. But we've lost uh, Pelly, Gianluca Viali, Dan McCafferty, Jet Black of the Stranglers, Alan Rankin, whom I did have a connection with, having been a friend of Billy, the great Billy McKenzie's. And I mean, and a lot of the time the, we are impacted emotionally by these deaths at this time of year with people we don't really know. But there was, we, uh, you knew Derek Bateman very, very well. And uh, he's a loss uh, that's that's been felt right across not just the S movement, but in, in terms of broadcasting and journalism. Yes. And I should say just before that, that also Angus Du McNichol uh, died, uh, a brilliant poet in Gaelic. Angus Du, uh, du is black in Gaelic, and that was his nickname because he went fairly white early on in his life. So uh, that was always the great perversity of Gaelic mm-hmm. that you just call someone the opposite of what they are. But I mean, a lovely, gentle guy. Um, he was also the the, the husband of uh, Gerda Stevenson, who wrote the poetry book Quines that some people mm-hmm. may know of. So, uh, yes, Angus died just before um, Derek's funeral. But, yeah, it was, I mean, what can you say that something is a brilliant funeral? But it's it's having been, sadly, to quite a few of them now, there's there's just something where you, you feel the fullness of the person in the room. And and that's some achievement because, um, I mean, there's there, I'm looking at the actual order of ceremony here um, and Derek, Derek had, there's a quote from Derek on the back. I believe in the afterlife. I think you live on in the hearts and minds of those who knew and loved you. It's not the same as breathing, I'll grant you, but it is a continuing existence. And that existence continued through that whole funeral ceremony, which is a tough thing to do in a crematorium with mm-hmm. limited everythings. But um, there were fabulous uh, memories of his life given by my ex-boss from BBC Radio Scotland, Maggie Cunningham, and uh, lovely poems written, uh, read read aloud, reflections, lovely music, actually, surprisingly, to me anyway, uh, some music by Peter Maxwell Davis, the Orcadian composer. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of all of that, it was a, a humanist ceremony conducted by Anna Burnside, who was also a colleague of mine at the Scotsman, is now a humanist celebrant. Um, there was a piper started it all off and it closed with everyone singing a man's a man for all that. Which, I mean, basically, I mm-hmm. could hardly sing because the emotion in it was just so strong. Um, and after that, there was some extraordinary conversations uh, with people. I mean, obviously, for myself, I knew Judith. Uh, I, I find I struggle to kind of describe her as Derek's widow, but she is. But Derek's wife. Um, and her two teenage girls who were there uh, managed the whole thing mass- mistressfully uh, to keep themselves, not just to keep themselves together, because why should you worry about that? Mm-hmm. But simply to have the full version of Derek in the room um, displayed in all the different things that he was interested in 
from this the little sort of kind of he was very interested in bird watching in an amateur but extremely knowledgeable kind of way there's so much that you, you fuller that you get to know of somebody i had no idea he had rambled around the, the the world in so many different guises in his newspaper career as well before he started broadcasting it does just show you again what a short blooming attention span we all have because earlier lives are very often lost in the detail of of what follows um, but but actually so much conversation in the spirit of what was chosen, a man's a man for all that, it almost allowed people to talk quite openly about independence at the end of it. Um, and many people who are current and former employees of the BBC speaking very openly about their own commitment to independence, which I wouldn't shop anybody by naming mm-hmm. names. It's not the point. But it's it's how much a very big emotional moment like that handled really well allows the next thing to happen and allows people once their guard, their emotional guard is dropped for other reasons to start trying to express their hopes about the future, which you feel almost obligated to do when you're seeing this grief stricken teenage generation in front of you. What should you be talking about, you know, amongst all the rest of it, it would have to be said. So there was a wee kind of talk about setting up a journalist for independence group because so many of those sectoral groups that we had in 2014 have fallen by the wayside. For me, that hasn't quite happened yet because um, not not apart from the book, um, I'm also trying to organise with Time for Scotland um, a rally to lights on day basically Mm -hmm. which is what we're hoping to make it the 31st of january so all our efforts is once again being plowed into that um we're hoping just on that score that we will we will definitely it's not hoping we will have a rally uh in edinburgh we're asking everyone to come with lights of whatever variety you want to come with alan smith who was the one that coined that phrase in the european parliament in his last speech in brussels leave the lights on will be speaking along with a lot of European speakers um, and we'll have a lot of music from people from, with different European backgrounds in Scotland. It'll not be a long night, but it'll be open air. So anyone who's worried about the flu and all the various viruses that are running around the place, you can just keep, we'll keep this as isolated, you know, set socially isolated as we did during COVID. It'll be a good night, a short one and one and a half hour kind of event. Um, but I really hope that people in Edinburgh will come and there will be a, a two page pullout in the National, which people can put in their windows and then illuminate your windows, All right. illuminate the landscape. Um, yeah. This is just about to roll out. We haven't got this just quite together yet because we've also had thoughts of trying to do a short procession through Holyrood Park. But that takes all sorts of planning and permission and so on. And that's still being rumbled through. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to put this all out in a one And that's why nobody's quite seen anything yet. But it will be coming out in the next couple of days. But the question to everybody is, I know Brexit may not feel like the thing that rocks your world hugely, but it's the prism through which people outside Scotland understand the difference of Scotland, because the, the difference in that vote was um, utterly astonishing in electoral terms, and it drew people's attention across Europe and in the rest of Britain to the differentness of, of, of Scotland and the inability of Scotland to express that within this current union. And that's vital. If we don't go in and observe the, 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 the snub, 
you know, the, the dismissal of Scotland that is in, implicit and inherent in that moment that happened on the 31st of January, nobody else, it's like the Supreme Court, no one else will give a toss. We have to keep yeah. saying, well, when there's moments like this, we have to be the ones who go out. And actually, on the 31st of January, despite the fact that now opinion polls tell us that the whole of the United Kingdom thinks that Brexit was a mistake, the only people who will be out with a, a political message about it will be us. Yes. So, again, be there or be square. <laughs> and think, <laughs> don't be square. Think about how you can safely put some kind of lighting in the landscape because there's lots of groups around the place doing that and i think also believe in scotland will have some illuminations on the night though i don't want to blow their plans because mm -hmm. they're quite impressive uh, so that's generally what i'm on at the moment and always push further in your energies to do things i think by moments of sort of communion essentially like derek's funeral yes well it's it's interesting because uh the we 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 have had this this ramble and when we started the podcast i thought to myself no columns how the heck are we going to fill the normal time that we, we usually have and we've actually gone over our normal time which has unfortunately meant we haven't had time to discuss the snp annual conference and the de facto referendum uh discussion that we were going to have but i can assure you we will be having that next week. So we, we to, to Bill, who suggested uh, this as one of our listeners, that we did look at the de facto referendum at the SNP annual conference. I hope you're not too disappointed, Bill. We will be talking about it next week and we will focus on it. And I made a resolution, Leslie, and what, everything you said earlier, I'm, I'm, I'm coming back to. I made a resolution this year and I, to be an optimist, but an angry optimist an angry optimist for Scottish independence. So welcome to 2023, folks. The first Leslie Reddick podcast is done and dusted. And we'll see you next week, chums. Bye.